Scripture says the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. And one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. We have the hatred of the crowd as Pilate stands before the people and says, I I find no guilt in this man. And yet the crowd cried out, Ah, crucify him. Give us, give us Barabbas, as Pastor Steve read earlier. We have the, the flogging and the crown of thorns in John chapter 19. It says Pilate took Jesus and, and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. And, and they came to him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they again struck him with their hands. Of course, we have the, the crucifixion itself in John 19 verses 16 to 18 where They took Jesus and bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull and they crucified him. And then we have his death as as Jesus cries out, it is finished. And the scripture says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so, so what is good about Good Friday? What's good about remembering the day Jesus was flogged and beaten and mistreated, and nailed to a cross? Well, I want to attempt to answer that question this morning. You know, the Bible, as most of us today will agree, is a very precious book. Very precious book. God's inspired word given to us. And one of the amazing things about the Bible is how Scripture interprets Scripture. You know, for example, you know, the Lord's Supper or communion is, is best understood as we, as we read all of the other passages in the Bible that talk about that, that, this great event. Think about salvation for a moment. I mean, in John chapter 3, tells, tells, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And later on in that same chapter, we're told that God sent Jesus into the world to save people. But... But think about what we would be missing if we did not have the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul then goes to provide such a a comprehensive structure to our doctrine of salvation. Paul's writings help us understand what it means to be saved, how we're saved, the, the nature of God's salvation. And so to answer the question of what is good about Good Friday... Or, or to seek meaning to the events that I just quickly covered from John's Gospel, I want to take you to the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 10. So, what's good about Good Friday? Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 18. The scripture says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, 
But a body have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and in sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time when, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, I I have to admit, I love this passage. I love this entire chapter. This, this is an important passage of Scripture that speaks, that speaks profoundly about our relationship with God. John Piper rightly says that sin is the strongest, deepest, and most pervasive problem of the human race. The writer of 1 John suggests that sin is lawlessness. All wrongdoing is sin. Sin is failing to live up to the perfect righteous standard of God's holy law. We are intrinsically sinful. Our sinful nature is such that even when we seek to do what is right, our motives often lack sincerity. Underneath all the misuses of money and sex and power is our sinful heart condition, our depravity. And so Piper offers this definition of sin, that any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things, this is the root of all sin. The root of all sin is a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that doesn't treasure God over everything else and everyone else. And so I want us to understand on this Good Friday that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. There is nothing inherently good in us. We are utterly sinful. We're depraved. We're dead in our sins. And we stand condemned before a holy God. And so in one sense, the progressive revelation of the Bible is the unveiling of God's plan to deal with our sin. And when it comes to God's plan for dealing with sin, with our sin, with my sin, Hebrews 10 is such a powerful passage. 
And so how does God deal with sin? Well, how are sinners made right before God? Hebrews 10 begins by addressing the matter of insufficient sacrifices. One of the big themes of the book of Hebrews is the contrasting of covenants. You have the old covenant and the new covenant. And we typically distinguish uh, these covenants through the division of our Bibles into the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I, I want you to understand that we should not look at the Old Covenant as a bad covenant. The, the Old Covenant, which the writer of Hebrews points to, it's not a bad covenant, but it's a covenant that is crying out for fulfillment in a new one. And so the writer of Hebrews says in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, listen, perfect those who draw near. And so the Old Covenant, as presented in detail in the, in the Old Testament, is a shadow of a new covenant, a shadow of something better. A shadow is at best a pale reflection. And central to the Old Covenant was this, this sacrificial system, a system of animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices were made daily, weekly, yearly, and it was through these, this sacrificial system that God dealt with human sin. Now you'll notice in verse 1 a reference to sacrifices offered every year, and this is a reference to the, the special day of atonement. This day was an annual and graphic event, as Al Mohler writes, that reminded the people that they were unable to perfectly obey the commands of the law and desperately needed a priest to mediate on their behalf. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is pointing to this insufficient system, these, these insufficient sacrifices. I mean, it's interesting that on some of the Jewish holy days, such as Passover, there, there could be 17,000 priests and Levites trying to keep up with the demand, offering sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people as animal after animal would be tied to the horns of the altar and be sacrificed. And on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the Jewish calendar, the high priest would enter into the most holy place on just this one day and offer the blood of a sacrifice to atone for the sins of all Israel. But verse 4 stands as a stark gospel reminder that it is impossible for the blood of animals to wash away sin. While animal sacrifices under the old covenant symbolized the payment for sin, it could not take away sin. It could not bring about complete forgiveness of sin. It could not adequately address a guilty conscience. Because the old covenant was a shadow of a better way. This covenant, this sacrificial system, was crying out for something better. Now, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the old order 
could not bring worshipers to a state of perfection that God required, and the repeated sacrifices daily, weekly, and yearly served to remind the people of their sin. What stood in the way of a clear conscience was the barrier of freshly accumulating sin. Nothing could atone for the guilty conscience of people for the sins they would commit right after the sacrifice. And so there was this continual cycle of of seeking this this clear conscience through the sacrifice of sin, but then they would sin again and right back to this guilty conscience. This was an imperfect cleansing that led to an imperfect conscience, a guilty conscience. Maybe there are some here today who live in that reality, struggling with a guilty conscience. This entire system, as the writer of Hebrews is is writing this, is crying out for fulfillment for something better. And the writer of Hebrews takes us there at verse 5. Verse 5 says, consequently, consequently, when Christ came into the world. And And so, here's the contrast. That in contrast to the blood of bulls and goats, which could not take away sin, there is Jesus... The Lamb of God. And right here we come to see that the fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system is being fulfilled in the person of Christ. And and so we're beginning to see now as uh, how Hebrews begins to provide more layers of meaning to, to the Good Friday accounts in the Gospels. The fulfillment that the old covenant was crying out for was realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. It was, it was Jesus whom John the Baptist identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And one of the ways the writer of Hebrews makes this connection for his readers is by going back to the Psalms. And so we have that section there, at, at beginning at verse 5 there, where, where, where the writer goes back and quotes from Psalm chapter 40. The writer of Hebrews, of course, writing predominantly to Jewish Christians, he, he reaches back into the Psalms, the, the ancient Jewish prayer book, and he attributes Psalm 40 to Jesus and his incarnation. And and for the sake of time, I'll just simply point out that in essence, Christ is saying, my father, the Old Testament sacrifices have proven unsatisfactory. So you have prepared a body for me that I might become a pleasing sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews is stating in no uncertain terms, That the sacrifice of Jesus was and is the perfect sacrifice. A once and for all sacrifice accomplishing for us what the old covenant sacrifices could never do. Verse number 10. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Nothing less. Nothing less than a perfect righteousness will meet God's standard. And so the only righteousness of only the righteousness of Christ will atone for sin. Yeah, Robert, Robert Lowry penned it well. What can wash away my sin? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For, for my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. What the writer of Hebrews wants can someone move an extension of time? Uh, what, what, the writer, what the writer of Hebrews wants his readers to see is that the sacrifice of Jesus on Good Friday, in contrast to the repeated sacrifices under the Old Covenant, was a once and for all sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin to end all other sacrifices for sin. The sacrifice of Jesus is definite and listen friends, it is all sufficient. The sacrifice of Jesus accomplishes what thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices could not completely, perfectly forgive sins once and for all. And to illustrate and further contrast the difference between the two covenants, the writer draws upon the role of the priest. Let me read again verses 11 to 14. This is an important part of this section, this, this chapter. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the writer, the writer gives us this contrasting picture. We, we, have, we have the old covenant priests who Hebrews says stands and never sits. And then we have Jesus, our great high priest of the new covenant, who completes his work and sits down. There, there are no chairs in the tabernacle and no provision to sit down. Priests never sat down while performing their duties because their work was never done. And so annually, whether annually or, or daily, the main point here is that repetition was necessary. You were only as secure as the next sacrifice. And the point is that the old covenant sacrifices could not take away sin, could not deal with a guilty conscience. Now, now friends, I want you to know that this practice continues today. Just substitute religious and moral performance for animal sacrifices. But it continues today as people try to deal with the guilt of, of their sin through moral performance or through social renewal or, or through living a more holy life or following a certain list. People still to this day are trying to deal with a guilty conscience. And so in contrast to a system that could not take away sin, there is Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says. He's a better priest. He's our great high priest. Jesus, who the scripture says, has passed through the heavens. 
And the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus, our great high priest of the new covenant, that this high priest, Jesus, he sits. He sat down. Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the heart of the distinction. Jesus offered in his body a single sacrifice for sins that was sufficient, thank God, for all time. And once he made this sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, communicating his work was complete. Atonement complete. Sin taken away. Perfect forgiveness. Blessed assurance. And here is the writer of Hebrews. What's he doing? He's providing meaning to the words of Jesus in John where he says, it is finished. And now Scripture is interpreting Scripture and giving us layer upon layer of meaning of what those words really meant. The priests who stand offer many sacrifices repeatedly. Jesus, however, makes one sacrifice for His is the only sacrifice sufficient to take away sins forever and its benefits never end. Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice which results at our final, the once and for all sacrifice of sins. Our salvation is a completed reality, an accomplished reality. Again, verse 14, for by a single offering, he has, that word, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now think about that verse. Just, just really think about what that verse is saying. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a truth. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Through Christ's sacrifice, we have been perfected. Perfection was the standard presented right from verse 1. If you go back to verse number 1, that was the standard. And through Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, we have been perfected, perfected for all time. So that begs the question, well, what does perfection mean here? I mean, it should be obvious that it does not mean a lack of flaws or or that we don't sin any longer after conversion. If you want proof of that, just hang out with me for a while this week. In, in fact, come with me this afternoon or right after this service. You will find out pretty quickly that perfection does not mean a lack of flaws. Because we all fail to measure up. I mean, we can read the Apostle Paul writing about his struggle to do what was right. There's a quote by Will Rogers who said, Will said, live so that you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. I'm telling you, on my best week, I ain't selling my parrot, my family parrot. Uh, there was a little boy attending, uh, a little boy attended the baby dedication of his little brother. And the older boy proceeded to cry all the way home in the car after the service. And his father asked, what's wrong, son? And the boy said, the minister made you promise that you would have us raised in a Christian home. Well, what's wrong with that? Asked the father. And the boy cried, I want to stay with you and mom. 
we fail. We fail. We, we, we mess up. What is the perfection the writer of Hebrews is referring to? That through Christ's sacrifice, we have been perfected. Perfection here can only mean one thing. It's a statement about our position with God. That when it comes to our standing before God, we have been perfected by Christ's once and for all sacrifice. This is the astonishing reality of the radical grace of God. That Christ's work is decisive. That through his work, his sacrifice, we have been made perfect forever. We have a perfect, eternally secure standing with God even as we are being made holy and being made progressively more like Jesus. We are being sanctified, verse 14, even as we are perfect. As we grow and fail and grow and fail some more, we do so with our lives hidden in Christ, our feet standing securely on the rock, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus' sacrifice brings full forgiveness so that no other offerings are necessary. But there's something else that is so much better as I wind this down. Verses 15 and 16, the writer says that we're given new hearts. The writer now reaches back to to the great promise of Jeremiah 31 where God promises to put his laws in the hearts of his people and to write them on their minds. Of course, contrasting law on tablets. And Jesus' sacrifice did what the old covenant could not do. Write God's laws on the hearts and minds of his people. And so the law of God is placed in the very center of the believer's being. The law of God is written on our hearts, giving us the inner impulse to delight in knowing God and his great will. What's good about Good Friday? Through Jesus' sacrifice, our conscience is cleansed from guilt. We are fitted to approach God. And we have a perfect, secure relationship with God. The beauty of the new covenant, as expressed by the writer of Hebrews, is that today and every day, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we live in a state of forgiveness. Our sins are forgiven, past present and future no more work to be done every sin forgiven you see it is the presence of sin in our conscience that hinders our communion with god but it is the work of the spirit to point us to jesus who through his sacrifice cleanses us once and for all and as someone pointed out that's why this morning we come to a table for the lord's supper and not to an altar for sacrificing animals Because Christ came into our world and brought about the new covenant in his once and for all sacrifice for sin. Listen, friends, God does not keep any tally of sins committed after conversion. Don't believe me? Verse number 17. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, for where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering. Well, friends, you know, there's a great deal of mystery surrounding the uh, authorship and context of Hebrews. We believe, however, that the letter was written to a small beleaguered church, most likely a house church comprised mainly of Jewish converts who were under great pressure. This, this little church was under a lot of persecution, worldly disadvantage, people who are paying a price for their initial commitment. Later on in this chapter, verses 32 and 34, the, the writer writes about how they were enduring sufferings and being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And so this letter, this letter was written to encourage and instruct a small group of scared, insecure Christians. And certainly this little church was asking some tough questions about God. And so you can imagine that this letter arrives and the small congregation gathers to hear it read. And through this letter, this beleaguered church is brought face to face with the God who speaks. And through this letter, they are brought face to face with the gospel of grace. And through an unparalleled picture of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, they find comfort and assurance which in turn gives them fresh power to live. What's good about Good Friday, friends, is this image that I encourage you to reflect upon today, that Jesus sat down. What does that mean? It means provision for you is full and complete. It means He's given you all you need to be right with Him, to be what you're supposed to be, and to do what you're called to do. And when you begin to doubt His grace, or when you're tempted to ever justify yourself, just say these three words to yourself. He sat down. And celebrate and walk in the amazing grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, Lord, your grace is amazing. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful book of Hebrews and this this chapter which helps us see what is good about today. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great sacrifice. And Lord, we thank you today that because of what you have done, that we stand here today forgiven, redeemed, set free. We, we have a conscience that is clear. We have blessed assurance. Not because of anything we have done or could ever do, but only because of what you, Lord Jesus, have done for us. And so we offer you our praise in Jesus' name.